Welcome to the Modern Classrooms Project podcast. Each week, we bring you discussions with educators on how they use blended, self-paced, and mastery-based learning to better serve their students. We believe teachers learn best from each other, so this is our way of lifting up the voices of leaders and innovators in our community. This is the Modern Classrooms Project podcast. Hello and welcome to episode 125 of the Modern Classrooms Project podcast. My name is Tony Rose Deannon, she, they pronouns, a community engagement manager at MCP, and I am joined by a former coworker of mine, Melody Maitland, she, her pronouns, a middle school director of student services at Capital City Public Charter School in Washington, D.C. Welcome, Melody. Hi. It's so exciting to be in this space with you, and thank you so much for saying yes to the podcast. So before we get started, what's bringing you joy lately? Um, definitely a lot of positive student interactions. Since coming back from break, it's always a challenging time. Um, but the kids are just so funny. And um, so lots of time with kids. That's my joy lately. And that's so nice to hear because lately as I talk to educators as well, they always say the students are bringing them joy. And that is just like music to my ears. And you and I were just talking and I told you like how much I miss the students. They're just so ridiculously hilarious, um, both inappropriately and appropriately, (laughs) if that makes sense. But I just I miss that energy, you know, like they're just so hyped all the time. And gosh, I miss it. Anyways, thank you for sharing. So Melody, tell us more about who you are and how you got into special education. Yeah, so I am currently the director of student services, like you mentioned, at a charter school in DC. But I originally started my career as a social worker, you know, little um, Melody wanting to save the world, you know, a little bit of my white woman savior in me as a young child thinking that social work was the avenue to solve all the world's social ills. But I quickly realized that that was not the right fit for me um, as a human. So I transitioned into special education because there was some overlap, especially in the work I was doing with students. Um, So I came to D.C. and I was a teacher. And then I transitioned into special education leadership after I was in a master's program on special ed and got to meet a lot of different people who were doing awesome things in the district and just got really lucky to have great opportunities. And so I've stayed in the special education world and I hope to continue to stay in it, especially in the time of crisis where we're, you know, just losing a lot of amazing educators inside schools and also just from the sector in general. Yeah. And, you know, Melody, I really do have to say that I really appreciate you naming the white woman savior complex, because I think even being Filipino, I I definitely had some of that savior complex as well when I got into education. So I appreciate you naming that. Um, And something that I really want to let our listeners know is that Melody, Melody and I worked together for, I believe, three years. And hands down, like Melody knows her stuff, like any kind of questions that I have about policy, strategies, anything like Melody showed up up. Melody was able to come in and like observe and just give me some really great giveaway, like takeaways to implement in my classroom right away. And that was why I was like, oh my gosh, I have to get Melody on here to talk about um, neurodivergence actually, because this, the topic for this month is neurodivergence and, and, and supporting students of all backgrounds, of all capabilities, abilities, all of that good stuff. And so we really want to be able to just support all learners and not just some, right? And so 
For our listeners who may not know what neurodivergence means, Melody, how would you define it and who are all considered to be neurodivergence? Yeah, so neurodivergence is a term that we primarily use to refer to students with autism spectrum disorders, but it really does apply across different um, disabilities or differing abilities. But like if we just look at the word and kind of break it down into chunks, so neuro is a brain and divergent is different. So a brain that processes things differently from the quote unquote typical brain, whatever that is. Um, But for me, it's really about understanding the differing strengths and challenges that each learner has and then programming accordingly for those needs. And so you just taught me something new um, because I didn't know that it was used primarily to refer to students with autism spectrum disorder. So this is really a learning curve for me. So thank you for teaching me. And and so what are some common misconceptions about learners who are neurodivergence and how can we disrupt these misconceptions? So I think for me, the first is, as I you probably noticed in my quote unquote typical, is that what is this notion of typical or quote unquote normal Um, We know that all students have a unique set of strengths and challenges. And for our kiddos who we call neurodivergent or diagnosed that way, or in a lot of um, communities, especially the autism community, there's a lot of self-identification as, you know, someone who is autistic or neurodivergent is, you know, a term that folks identify with. And I think for me, this means that there's just more research for individuals that have this specific profile. And then when we look at the profile set, there is a vast amount of needs. But legally, we do use this criteria to determine eligibility for specific services because money is attached. But I think the biggest misconception for me is that there there's no typical or normal Um, We're all kind of individuals who deserve individualized instruction, especially in education context. Um, And then I think the second big misconception is that students who have differing abilities cannot or will not achieve at high levels, which is like at grade level and above. And it's been my experience that when students are provided with the right supports based on their individualized needs, not generalized labels, um, students with differing abilities are some of the highest performing kiddos in the school. And if we focus primarily on the challenges associated with a student's neuro profile instead of the strengths, kids are not going to be able to perform at their full potential. So that's why we also have to take a strengths-based approach and, and be aware of challenges or needs that a student has so that we can support them, but also find what their superpowers are, because there's a lot of strengths that I don't think we talk a lot about when it comes to students who have differing abilities. Yeah, I mean, and definitely, you know, it's kind of we get stuck. We meaning like educators, educators get stuck with the the labeling, right, of being like, oh, my gosh, because a student has this label, they must not be able to do blank or they must have limited blank. Right. It's never unfortunately our biases come in. Um, and so I, I really like the the term that you used of having strength based approach, right, of really going in there and and knowing and believing that your students are capable of everything that you throw at them. It's just that they're going to require a lot more support and that's okay. There's like absolutely nothing wrong with extra scaffolding or chunking or support. Great. Um, And so I have a question for you, just kind of a follow-up question. Um, You talked about eligibility. How, how is that process? Because I've only been in the general ed, um, general education. And so, How does that process work? Yeah, so 
eligibility for special education services or to determine if a student has a disability starts with a referral. It could come from um, a parent, which that's usually a big place where referrals come from. Like, I think my student might have ADHD or they're struggling with this and I want to see if um, it is there's something more going on that we just can't see or there's a history of dyslexia in my family. Um, I think I'm seeing these characteristics. So it would come from someone, usually a parent, a staff could refer. Um, I've had times where kids have referred, especially in a high school setting, which has been really amazing because kids know themselves the best. And um, when they're included in all conversations about what they can do and um, where they want to go in life, that is where we get the biggest uh, successes. So basically a referral comes in. An IEP team will look at and it will do an analysis of existing data. So looking at what the specific areas of concern were. So say the family who I have concerns about dyslexia will look at reading and writing data. Um, where are they currently performing? A lot of times that data, unless there's like some outside evaluations that the parent provides, um, isn't going to tell us like, yes, this kid definitely has um, this disability. But what it does provide is a starting point for the conversation to then have a meeting with the team that includes the parent to go through the data and determine next steps. Sometimes those next steps will look like, uh, we don't really have enough information or there's an intervention that we want to try before we really go through this full formal evaluation process. But most of the time, it ends with, hey, we need additional information, more formal information in these areas. And then we have experts, so psychologists who do um, psychoeducational reports or a speech pathologist will do a speech language evaluation where they're doing those norm reference um, one-on-one testing to really get a sense of what the kiddo's needs are. Then they produce a report, and then we come back as IEP team. We look at that report. A lot of times a psychologist will have a recommendation, or they may even diagnose using the DSM, like this kid has episodic depressive disorder or something. I think I just made that up. I'm not even sure if that's a real (laughs) diagnosis. But they'll give a diagnosis, and then that will help us determine um, which IDEA disability criteria sheet we use, which sometimes that may be more than one. Um, And we just go through the criteria Now, federal government has a set of criteria, but usually states also add on or have very additional criteria to see if kids are eligible. But it's basically like, do they have the characteristics of this disability and what is the educational impact? So if there is an adverse educational impact because of the disability, they'll qualify for an IEP, which provides them not just with accommodations and services like related services like counseling or speech but it also will provide them specially designed instruction around a set of goals. Um, Usually those goals are in the areas of concern and things that um, are impeding them from fully accessing the general education curriculum and being able to progress. Now, sometimes diagnoses or disabilities are agreed upon by the team, but, you know, we're talking about a kid who's not having the impacts in the classroom So maybe they're, you know, performing at or above grade level. They don't really have any behavior referrals or any concerns from their teachers. They might just need accommodations or related services. So they might qualify for a 504 plan. And then we also have some kids who we find out have disabilities and may not need any services at all. 
So that's kind of, that was a really long winded answer. So sorry about that. But yes, it is definitely a process and it has all these legal timelines and paperwork that you have to do, but it's comprehensive so that we don't misidentify kids because, you know, under identifying is just as, uh, not bad because that's a, I don't want to use that word, but uh, worrisome as over-identifying kids. When we give kids services that they don't need, we create learned helplessness and that doesn't help them when they leave us, um, which our goal is for when they leave education for them to be like independent humans who are able to navigate our very complex world. Whew, that was, that was a really good answer, Melody. <laughs> Sorry, I'm going to take a drink now because it's so much talking. No, 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 no. That was really, really great. And it's, 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 it's interesting because I've been in education for so long and I still have so many questions about special education. Right. And so thank you for teaching me again. And I didn't even know that kids could refer themselves as well. And and that's a great way to really advocate for themselves if they know like, Hey, something's up. Like I need this to, I need, I need someone to, to help me figure out what's going on. I didn't know that that was even possible, but, and I'm assuming that's for high school students. No, I mean, I recently had a middle schooler. Um, they were reading Percy Jackson in their class, and there was like a little section in the book about Percy having ADHD. And the kid was like, oh my gosh, like I experience these things too. Like maybe I have ADHD. Um, and guess what? Like that kid did have ADHD, and it had not been diagnosed until the kid kind of brought it up from learning about this in his book. Anyone can really refer a kid. I think that there are still a lot of um, issues around, I, I guess the best term is like ageism, about adults not really seeing the value in kids' voice or really listening mm. and listening specifically for their expertise on themselves. And so maybe some schools might not do that, uh, but yes, they can definitely refer themselves um, and we can initiate that process. And I and I do like that there is that flexibility to do that. Yeah. And it's, it's again, interesting that you mentioned ageism too, right? As far as like adults not really listening to students or, um, or just not really having the same weight, right? When it comes from someone who's younger. And so I really appreciated you naming that. And it's, it's actually interesting too, because recently I had been diagnosed with ADHD and I was like, wait a minute, <laughs> what? <laughs> what does that even mean? And so I'm still kind of coping with that as an adult. And I think, again, like there's, uh, there's a population, an adult population out there who's getting diagnosed at a later age, right? And like trying to figure out like, oh, how do I navigate now that I know that this is what was happening, but I wasn't even aware that this was happening. Yeah. Um, it's wild. It is. Thank you for sharing that. I mean, it's really important that people are sharing that we all have different things going on. Um, because the more we talk about it, the less stigmatizing it becomes. And it, um, I think that's also the biggest battle I fight with families is like, they're like, I don't want my child to know that they have a learning disability. And I'm like, yeah, well, that's not going to happen because they definitely need to know it's information about themselves. And also the more you don't talk about it, your fear of it being of them getting their feelings hurt is actually just going to come true more because now you stigmatize thing that's totally normal. Like we all have different ways of learning. And so knowing yours is helpful in life. Um, so I really appreciate you sharing that. 
I mean, it's definitely a struggle melody. I come from a culture where we don't talk about that kind of stuff, right? And so for me, it's like, oh, but this is just who I am. And so I'm still definitely struggling with it um, and just trying to navigate all of that because it's just so new to me. And the more research I do, the more I'm like, wow, I okay, <laughs> this is new. This is interesting. And you're right. Like the more I talk to my family about it, the more I talk to my friends about it, it's becoming less stigmatized. Um, and it's just been such an interesting journey. So I'm, I'm really glad that you kind of brought that up for me as well. Um, and so I, okay. So we often get comments that learners at 504s and IEPs aren't capable of having a learning environment that is blended, self-paced and mastery based. Right. And again, like you were saying, there's just a lot of misconceptions here. Um, and so what would your response be to those comments? Well, I actually think blended self-paced and mastery-based learning environment is best and most ideal for all learners, especially our kids that have 504s and IEPs. And I think much of the concern is less around students and more about misconceptions, or sometimes we've seen poor examples of blended learning experiences. But I think when done right, all students can thrive. And I and like any pedagogical technique or experience that we're providing, you have to have high quality training. It's required so that we have high quality implementation. And then also, it's not a one-time thing. Like we're constantly getting new research and we need coaching and we need an additional eye that's like, okay, like here's where I might tweak this so that um, more learners can access. So I think actually this is the best way that we can teach our kiddos with 504s and IEPs to truly make it individualized to their learning needs. And it's funny, I'm going to go ahead and plug it into that Modern Classroom does provide that ongoing coaching and support. And so if, if you're you know, a listener just starting to listen and not really know about Modern Classroom, we really do provide that support. We try to pair you up with a mentor who is currently teaching. Um, and so you can have those conversations because, again, like you said, Melody, poor examples, right? That really does impact and hurt someone's like beliefs and or confirm their beliefs that something like this cannot possibly happen or it can't be possible for students who have IEPs and 504s. And, and I think it's just really interesting too, that, you know, typically when I talk to teachers or educators who have never implemented something like this before, it's, I think it's not even the misconception. I think it's just a fear also, right. Of like trying something new and then being so overwhelmed because they're having to do so many different things that they can't even have, the energy or the time to try and figure out how to make their teaching and learning practices a little bit different than what it was before, right? And so um, I've, I had a lot of students with IEPs and 504s in my classroom, and yes, they needed a lot more scaffolding, and there was some even who needed a, a lot of hand-holding in the beginning or even up until March of the school year. But then at the end, they were just like, they understood what kind of learner they were. They were able to advocate for what they needed, and they could tell me exactly what they needed, which I thought was something that I didn't have before. Um, and so I really love that like my students were able to 
just start wherever they needed to start. They could come in however they needed to come in with all of the baggage that they were bringing in. And then just providing that space to just like sit still, really like evaluate how am I going to use my time today? How can I name my emotions and move forward and be successful? And then also how can I ask for help from not only my teacher, but also my peers. And so I really appreciated you saying this too, that it's it's really less around the students and more around the misconceptions about what this could look like right and of course there's like plenty of poor examples out there (laughs) Um, and and that's okay especially if you're just starting out right if you're just starting out it could be poor um, and then you just continue to get better well and I agree and having been in your classroom pre-modern classrooms and after just like how empowered kids felt um, and could explain what they needed and then also just the change having been in a lot of classrooms pre and post when when teachers are doing modern classrooms project, teachers just feel like not just more confident, but I I feel the vibe of like calmer and like they're not having to, it's not like whack-a-mole teaching where you're like having to make all these decisions on the spot and there's like this behavior thing because you're trying to do, you know, one form of instruction with a big group of kids who have different needs. So I always find that the, the culture and climate of, classrooms where modern classrooms project is happening is just so nice (laughs) and that's not to say other (laughs) models are not but I have I have got to see of different classrooms and a visible difference um in educators who are implementing and and implementing with fidelity and taking in all that feedback and getting better at it Yeah, I completely agree with you. I've also had a couple of conversations with educators who are special educators, right? And they were like, you know what? This is the first time where parents and all stakeholders involved in that student's learning, um, they were just so excited because they knew exactly what we were learning in class. They could sit with their student and learn alongside with them and also just understanding what the goals are of that student and, and achieving those goals and so now like teachers have this game plan of being more intentional with the teacher time that they have in the classroom so that they can work with those students who need more time who need more support and sometimes it's the students who um, have IEPs in 504 sometimes those are students that don't even need extra support they're just like oh no we got it and then they like shine and they lead and they become the, the student teachers in that classroom and I just I really love seeing that confidence build up again because I think time and time again in their school journey, right? Like they, they were put this label and there were a lot of misconceptions and assumptions about their abilities and they weren't provided that space to shine and thrive. I couldn't agree more. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I've, I've also been exposed to a saying that one thing can't really be designed for every single person in mind, right? And so how can we ensure that this blended learning, self paced and mastery based learning is accessible by all learners? Yeah, I think I've heard this a lot too. And I think we traditionally design instruction around what's considered average when like more and more research is showing that there is no average. So when we take that traditional approach, we're really planning, designing instruction for no one um, because there's no teaching to the middle. So I think that the base assumption is what we have to start with. Like there's, for me, there's no other way than to design for every single person in mind, especially in this like post I know we're still kind of in pandemic, but like this post pandemic learning environment, there's even more diversity in our learners as a result of these like different 
learning environments that they have experienced, um, that all kids have experienced across the country, because a lot of what they were learning was outside of our control. Obviously, we were providing um, input, and, and most of our teachers didn't have a lot of instruction on how to do virtual instruction. So I really do think, in, especially in this day and age that we're in, if we're not designing with every learner in mind, how will we support the targeted and needed growth of all of our learners? It has to be designed for every single person in mind. Like there's no other uh, way, in my opinion. And, and oh my gosh, Melody, literally when you said research is showing that there is no average and there's no teaching to the middle, right? And I never even considered that perspective. But I think that that's what we've been doing. And so it is, it is that time. I mean, we're tired. Everyone's tired, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. We're tired. And it's also the best time to start innovating and changing things up, mixing things up. Because clearly we realize that when the pandemic hit, what we were doing before <laughs> was not going to work. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, okay. Well, so, okay. This is great and all. But I'm sure listeners are going to wonder, what are some actionable steps that educators often forget to implement in their classrooms to better serve all learners? Um, Yeah, this is a great question. For me, the biggest thing, and I've kind of already alluded to this, is that we forget as educators about how powerful student voice is. And we know kids are experts on themselves. They have a wealth of knowledge, but it often goes untapped by us educators And I think when we fully integrate our students into their learning, they take more ownership, they're better equipped to navigate the world beyond us. Um, And ultimately, at least my goal in education is to build self-advocates. And that starts in my classroom or in my school, um, because school's the place where students spend a majority of their time, especially, you know, the K through 12 and their, their most prime years. And oftentimes, We try interventions or to design supports that are ineffective because we never ask the recipient, which is our student, what their thoughts and opinions are. Um, Mm. And so for me, talk to your students. Don't hide the ball. Like, let them into the learning process. It doesn't have to be a teacher-student monologue here. It's like, you know, we need the collaboration with students. So that's my most actionable step is talk to your students about the learning, not just getting to know them, but like what we're doing in class and what their previous knowledge is and um, integrate their voice into everything that we do in the classroom. Yes, I love that so much. I think, I mean, I've said it time and time again, some of the best ideas I have were from my students. (laughs) Yeah, they're just, they're so great like something that I thought would be so amazing they're like no that's actually trash and then they come up with something even better and I'm like yo I didn't have to waste any of this time planning I should have just asked (laughs) y'all I totally agree with that um and I really also again appreciate you naming the fact that sometimes we try to go in there fixing something and we never actually ask that community. We never actually ask that student or the recipient who's going to be impacted by all of it. Right. And so of course things are going to turn out to be ineffective because we're trying to solve like the problems that we're just assuming that they're problems. Yeah, we're doing to people instead of with people um, or mm. we're doing for people instead of with them. And as we know, not even just students, but other communities, um, that just doesn't work. 
Oh my gosh, I love that. Okay, prepositions. <laughs> I'm working on my prepositions and I really like that uh, quick lesson that you had there, Melody. We're doing it to people instead of with and that's not, how, that's not what we want to do. Okay, so uh, listeners, we're going to take a quick break for an announcement. And when we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about neurodivergence and supporting all learners. Hey, listeners, it's Tony Rose here with some announcements and reminders. If you and or your teacher bestie are interested in the virtual mentorship program, we do have scholarships available. Make sure to check out modernclassrooms.org slash scholarships. We have regional scholarships available for educators in Baltimore City, New York City, D.C., Chicago, Tulsa County, and the Twin Cities that include full tuition, a year of implementation support, and a $500 stipend for finishing the program. We are continuing our scholarship across the state of Indiana, which includes implementation support and 30 PGPs. Any educator in the state can enroll right now at modernclassrooms.org indiana. We also have partnerships with districts across the country who are paying for educators to go through our training. As for professional learning, make sure to check out our webinars page on modernclassrooms.org webinars. And to connect with our community, join our Twitter chat on the first Wednesday of the month and our virtual meetup on the second Wednesday of the month. And we hope to connect with you outside of our podcast. All right. And now we're back with Melody. Okay, Melody. So... I've never served learners who are hearing or visually impaired, but I do have friends who are deaf or hard of hearing. So when I hung out with my friends for the first time, I quickly realized so many privileges and accessibility that I had, and it gave me a different perspective. So do you have any experiences or strategies on how to better serve this community in school settings? Yeah, I mean, your experience is pretty common. As a low-incidence disability, um, most folks haven't gotten the opportunity to serve learners who are hearing or visually impaired, myself included. There, the first thing is that there's a lot of specialized instruction needed because as you point out, accessibility is more of a challenge and unfortunately an afterthought for this group of humans. Um, that being said, for any learner, I always start with the individual. Like what are their strengths, challenges, needs and develop plans accordingly as well as instruction. And the biggest thing I think about is universal design for learning practices because those are really critical for all individuals, especially anyone who has any physical needs or differences or challenges, because all of our environments are not built typically with these individuals in mind. But we know from like why UDL was established is if we, which is started more so the philosophy with architecture, right? Um, and how it has integrated into education. Um, we know that if we start with those who may experience the most challenges and we create environments that are conducive for those individuals, it's actually conducive to everyone. So really thinking less about the label or like, what is this specific um, difficulty or disability that this person has? And just like, what does this person need? What are their strengths that they're bringing? What are the challenges? And then what are the best supports? Because even you could have two people who have the same quote unquote disability or diagnosis, but required completely different things, um, which is why, again, talking to individuals and learning about what they need is, you know, the answer for me. And I know it sounds really like, okay, Melody, I'm just going to like talk to all my students and everything's going to be solved. Yeah, I know it sounds kind of wishy-washy, but I do really believe in that. I will never put something in a kid's IEP or provide a service that I have not talked to that kid about and gotten their feedback on. 
because if they don't buy into it, it's not going to work. It's not going to be effective. So with any person, no matter what the challenge or diagnosis is, we really just have to start with them as a human, as a learner, as a person. Thank you for calling me in on just differentiating when really we're all just individuals with different needs, right? And so I I really appreciate the call in. And I know that I'm going to continue moving forward with that mindset. And you're absolutely correct, right? It is all about individual needs and not necessarily a group of people, right? Like, yes, there's a group of people, but it doesn't mean that every single person in that group um, needs the same thing. And so I, I really... I really appreciate that perspective and thank you again for teaching me and you, the UDL practices universal design for learning. I, I find that to be really fascinating that it did start out with architecture and now it's like trickling into education and we're talking a lot more about it. And so I feel like um, teachers have always heard of this term, but I think it's, it's difficult to implement if they have no training or if there's no guidance or support and how exactly to create this this space for students right and so um, we definitely need to look more into that and just provide more guidance for UDL practices and so when we think about individuals right and I think this is something too um, when I start thinking about like as an able-bodied individual right um, I often don't think about all of my privileges right Mm -hmm. like what kind of communities am I lacking knowledge about um, and what can I do to be even more inclusive Um, and so I think it just brought in a lot of awareness for me and then I'm like oh like I've actually never interacted with this community before let me go find out more about that community Um, and I, I definitely push our listeners to do that as well to just kind of sit back and reflect on all of our privileges all of like all of who we are as people and then like finding people who are different than us right I completely agree and um, I oftentimes think about my able-bodiedness just because that's something that I you know work with every day but I'm definitely working on my what I talked about the white woman savior complex um, because if I am not continually questioning that and how it's showing up in the work I do with kids and families and staff members. I'm just further creating more harm and inequity. Um, And that goes back to, you know, the prepositions, right? Like that's why they matter so much to me because if I think I'm doing for or to a group of people, I am just imposing things that are completely inappropriate and are recreating and reinforcing um, systems of oppression that um, are continuing to result in these inequitable outcomes that we see in our schools across the, the, the I, w- I say nation, but it, it's probably across the world if we like really think about it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, even you said too, right? Like accessibility is an afterthought and I'm really for myself pushing to think about accessibility a lot more before I do, before I plan out a whole thing, I'm like, okay, how do I make this accessible for all? Um, and not one of those things where, Oh, I'm going to plan first and then go back and figure out how to make it accessible. But that's also really hard practice because that was not what I did before. Um, and so just, I think being vulnerable and being honest with yourself of being like, Oh wow, that was a really like quote unquote awful thing to do. Um, But now, like, I know better, so I'm going to do better, right? (laughs) 
Yes, exactly. Oh my gosh, what a humbling conversation this is, Melody. <laughs> so I really appreciate this conversation because this is what what the process is all about. And this is why I think um, Modern Classrooms Project especially has so much wraparound support for teachers is because it's through these conversations, dialogue and reflection that we become better educators. Of course, we add tools to our tool belt. Um and we get better at, you know, those concrete th- skills, but also it's really about this piece. And I think this a lot of times is not um, included in how we are supporting our teachers. So um, I really do appreciate this conversation because it's, it's helping me think about a lot of things about myself as an educator as well. Yeah, I mean, on, I, I'm I'm sweating, Melody, because <laughs> I'm just sitting in this discomfort of like, oh my gosh, I I still have so much to learn. I still have so much vocabulary to shift, right? And and I mean, now you know, I'm thinking about like the prepositions that you had um, shared the the doing it to people rather than with people. And now I'm thinking too, it's like when you do things to people, you're actually just serving yourself so it may seem like you're serving others but it's honestly you just serving yourself so that you can feel good but it doesn't necessarily have a positive impact on that community that you think you're serving and so that's also something to keep in mind too of like are we doing this to our community are we doing this with our community and I think those are great questions to start off especially when planning especially when having conversations especially when we think that there's something that needs to be fixed and that we need to fix it, right? Right. Whew, all right. Give me a moment here. <laughs> um, on that note, how can we be better advocates for our learners with learning disabilities or differences? And how can we better support our families and caregivers? Yeah, I think you're going to be like, Melody, sound like a broken record. But I mean, I think the best we can do is empower that inner advocate that all of us have, including our students. Um, When we advocate with our students, we do far more than when we do it for them or to them, especially considering that many educators do share the identity I have as a white woman. And in urban settings like the school that I'm at, that is not the population, the primary population that's served. So if I am just enacting what I feel like is right and imposing that on kids, um, I'm just causing more harm. I think the same is true for families. Most times what I've seen is like, you know, a parent has to be a participant on the IEP team. So like they're invited, they come to this meeting once a year, but they're not really meaningful participants of that child's school team. Um, It's kind of just like a, a checklist item, I feel like a lot of times. So in order to better support our caregivers, we have to have regular communication. We need to be asking for their feedback, insight, advice, having crossover between strategies we're using at school and home so that there's continuity. Um, And sometimes that could look like educating and supporting families with what is the research, um, what is evidence-based practices when a student has this particular need, and just actually being real partners in the learning and support of students, not kind of these surface-level relationships that I know and I've been guilty of this. I'm like, I just need to like get them in for this. And then I don't think about, okay, how am I going to keep them involved in this plan in support of our shared student? Because the, the parent is the first teacher of a kid. And if I'm not including them meaningfully and 
leveraging their expertise on their own child. Again, we are going to be doing things uh, to kids or for them that are just not supportive. Yeah, and I also want to name the fact that parents and caregivers put a lot of trust in school systems for their kids to be supported, right? And sometimes um, I know a lot of the times maybe it's just like a society, but it's really difficult to ask for help. So if you, like, you know, if there's a parent or a caregiver, maybe they just don't know how to ask for help. And so I like the piece that you're talking about with educating them, right, with research, with with tips and tricks on how to better serve their students and also just like welcoming them in the conversation and not just talking at them, because I think that's what we've been doing in education, right? We've been talking at students, we've been talking at at families and caregivers. And and so it's it's really nice to just, again, like you said, consider you know, their strengths and also just considering, um, their expertise and, and just providing that partnership and not just a checklist. So I, I think at this moment I would really push for just people to slow down a bit. Right. Um, and really taking a step back and reflecting on like, okay, we have this meeting with this parent and instead of having thoughts like, oh, well, this parent's not going to show up or this parent's not gonna, you know, their parent, the, the parent is just here just to be here, but they don't actually care. Instead, like approaching the situation with curiosity um, and just lots of empathy, I think, is how we want to kind of culminate and create that relationship with stakeholders. Because like you said, parents and caregivers, they're they're first teachers for those for those students and for all students, honestly. And so we really want to create that space for our caregivers and our families to show up as they are and also ask all of the questions. Um, without feeling judged or reprimanded. That really resonated with me. Like I have heard educators say or make assumptions about families that they have no idea um, what the family may be going through, what the barriers are. So I think also as educators in a role that I play as a leader and maybe not someone who's in the classroom every day is to really disrupt those harmful statements that create narratives and mindsets Um, that are really unfair and hard to come back from. I mean, once Mm -hmm. there's like a negative narrative about a student or their family, like then that's the starting point for new educators who get that kid. And it's just really, it doesn't support anyone. So I'm constantly hearing it constantly vigilant for kind of these, these statements that, people think don't, you know, I'm just saying this thing or like, this is my opinion, or I'm just frustrated about it. But you know, language is powerful. So Mm -hmm. uh, we have to really think about how we're talking about caregivers, or else that's another piece, we won't be able to have meaningful partnerships if we don't. I don't like saying assume the best, because there's a lot of stuff wrapped up in that. But for this context, just really knowing that every parent or caregiver wants their child to be successful. They want to be engaged and that there are barriers sometimes to engagement. It's about figuring out what those barriers are so that we can bring them in in a meaningful way. Yeah, because I I always say, you know, it's so easy to blame people instead of actually like trying to figure out what those barriers are. And that's, I mean, I, I, that's something I'm also working on. (laughs) It's like, you know, it's so easy to blame people, but in all honesty, it's like, no, let's take a step back 
and see like what is creating this friction, what's the tension here, and what can we do to ensure that everyone feels successful and supported. Um, okay, so if you had a magic wand, gosh, wouldn't it be nice to have a magic magic wand <laughs> to fix anything in education? Whew, I have a lot. What would it be? <laughs> oh well. This is really easy for me. I think if we, if I had a magic wand, we would just not label students or anyone really. We would just identify what that student's unique profile is, design instruction to meet their specific individualized needs. And we wouldn't have these like arbitrary and socially constructed practices like grade levels or like you're in a class and you're only interacting with a select group of students for the majority of your day. Like just... You, you know, I feel like a lot of these practices are so old school and traditional and our students, especially with technology and what they have um, access to and exposure to, um, we need to recreate our uh, learning environments to meet like the 21st century, because right now we're trying to do a lot of traditional things, um, kind of like what is that phrase, like trying to fit a s- square peg in a round hole. Right. Like yes. <laughs> through this and not not label them, but just figure out what does everyone need and how can we create environments that are conducive to that? And I think Modern Classrooms Project is, you know, on, you know, one of the most more innovative in the sense of like, I think that that is one of the purposes is to address this major gap that we're seeing between, you know, what our society needs and where we're at as a country and civilization even Um, and trying to get our educational and instructional practices to meet the place that we are currently. Um, Because there's a lot of, a lot of, a lot, a huge ways to go um, in that regard. Yeah, something that really resonated with me is you saying, you know, like only interacting with a select group of students for a majority of the day each year. And that Gosh, now I'm like reflecting back on my practices. Did I do that? (laughs) Um, But that's kind of what we were trained to do. You know what I'm saying? But it would be really nice to be a lot more intentional and meaningful with those groupings that we have um, in our classrooms. And so thank you for pointing that out. And, you know, this whole on grade level, below grade level, like above grade level, I'm just like, I don't know what that means. <laughs> I'm just going to keep it moving. <laughs> and well, that's wild, Melody. I was in education for 10 years. <laughs> right. And it's not just like a select group, like a group within the school, the classroom, right? It's just like how education has been designed, especially in the early levels, like you're in the same class all day. And with technology, we just have so much more access. Like why would our kids only be interacting with their homogenous, a lot of times homogenous um, groups that are in their community instead of like, you know, being able to talk to kids in other countries and figuring out like how we're all learning this math concept. Like what are different ways that we're learning across the world and just really building those bridges because we can do that. We have the technology to do it. So why aren't we leveraging it? Um, I'll get off my soapbox now. <laughs> no, 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 no. I see what you're saying. And that's such a good point. That is such a good fo- point because, you know, there's still schools that track their students, right? And so because they're tracked, they just stay with those same group of kids forever. Yeah. And then it's like their future has already been set for them because this is the track that they're on. Yes, yes. Oh, my gosh. Yes, Melody. Thank you. <laughs> that needed to be said. 
Um, okay. So what do you hope to see in the future and what goals do you have in education? So I think, I, I think I've talked a little bit about this or maybe before we um, got on the call, but or started recording is that education really is in such a state of crisis right now. We're just losing a lot of educators. Um, there seems to be a lot of opinions about our profession. And so my goal long-term is figuring out ways within my locus of control, my utilizing my privilege, how I can support um, with developing systems that value, honor, and respect what our educators do every day, especially our class-based educators, so that we'll have more individuals staying in our sector, especially within the school setting. I know that's lofty, but that's what I would love for the future. <laughs> I really like that you also just reiterated the fact that it's within your control, right? Um, and focusing on what you can do in your circle, what you can do in your community, and what you can do with your privilege. Um, and so I really like that, that you named that. And so, I mean, I definitely am seeing so many amazing educators leaving the schools, right? Just so that, just because they're tired, they're burnt out, they're mentally exhausted. Um, and so that, that it's, it's, it's exhausting to think about. And then of course, like everyone has a say, about what teachers should and should not be doing, which is wild to me. Um, but no, that's a really great goal. And you know what? When you are close to achieving that goal, Melody, let me know how it goes. Because <laughs> I would love to know what your progress is like. <laughs> if I could really figure that out, I'd get a Nobel Peace Prize or something. It's a very lofty goal. You would. And that, that would also be really, really cool. So, um, okay, well, how can our listeners connect with you? Um, I really love collaborating, being a thought partner, reflecting, learning new things. So anyone can email me. My school address is um, my first name and last name, Melody Maitland, M-E-L-O-D-Y-M-A-I-T-L-A-N-D at ccpcs.org. Um, or if you, you know, you don't want to have all this tracked in some school based email, you can definitely use my personal email address, which is melody period maitland at gmail.com. So you could send me an email if you want to connect further. Um, and I'm really appreciative to have gotten the opportunity to have this conversation. Yeah, I mean, you have so much more to offer melody, but thank you so much for just, again, just being here with me and really helping me reflect through just past practices and just lots of awareness here. So it's, it's really, really nice to share this space with you. Um, and so listeners, remember, you can always email us at podcast at modernclassrooms.org and you can find the show notes for this episode at podcast.modernclassrooms.org slash 125. We'll have this episode's recap and transcript uploaded to the Modern Classrooms blog on Friday. So be sure to check there, or check back in the show notes for this episode if you'd like to access those. Thank you all so much for listening. Have a great week and we'll be back next Sunday. Thank you so much for listening. You can find links to topics and tools we discussed in our show notes for this episode. And remember, you can learn more about our work at www.modernclassrooms.org. And you can learn the essentials of our model through our free course at learn.modernclassrooms.org. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Modern Class Proj. That's P-R-O-J. We are so appreciative of all you do for students in schools. Have a great week, and we'll be back next Sunday with another episode of the Modern Classrooms Project podcast. Podcast.